everyone, it's Debbie McGee, known as the lovely Debbie McGee. It's my brand new podcast, Spill the Tea with Debbie McGee, in which you will find out whether I'm really lovely or not, or whether it's just a myth. But I hope that you'll join me every week to hear different stories from my life. You know, what motivates me, what's happened to me, who I've met, and how I met my late husband, Paul Daniels. That's in Spill the Tea with Debbie McGee. Spill the Tea with Debbie McGee. Hello, everybody, and here we are again at Spill the Tea with Debbie McGee. Oh, and have I got a treat lined up for you this time. We worked together a couple of years ago on a job where we were actually in France and Spain for two and a half weeks and got on like a house on fire. He really is this most cheeky chap. So I wonder if you can guess who I'm talking about. It's actually the actor, Neil Morrissey. So uh, here I am talking to Neil and enjoy. Spill the Tea with Debbie McGee. I'm delighted to talk to my guests today because we've spilt a lot of tea together up in the Pyrenees and the mountains of Spain and it's Neil Morrissey. So hi Neil. Hi Debs. <laughs> it's quite nice to be talking to you without you know us being out of breath climbing a mountain. Yeah it's true actually you know because I'm um... Um, every day after such you know it was so punishing pretty much every day wasn't it there wasn't much time to kind of we managed to do a little bit but the socializing was you know kept to a minimum wasn't it because we always knew there was another 20 or 30k to walk following day yeah tried to keep our powder dry as it were and up early every morning as well well we Uh, i think we discovered didn't we that if we did get up at about five or six o'clock and start the walk um, we might, we can perhaps finish the day by about four o'clock in the afternoon and then find a bar. Exactly. That was, that was certainly me, JJ, and Ed Byrne, anyway, you know. We all had a good time because you always seem to be able to find somewhere in these places up in the mountains. So, yeah. you know, so, I mean, we all had such a good time, despite the fact that I think it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah, it was tough. Uh, and um, when you see it, it's a pilgrimage, isn't it? And that's what they used to do. Seriously, if I ever do that kind Kind of thing again i'm going to definitely take advantage of some of the beautiful places and beautiful villages that we went through that had yeah. gorgeous little hotels yeah exactly yeah. i know we should have done it but you know we they were being very strict with us on that pilgrimage that we had yeah, to quite, stay strict, quite strict Debbie, but, but um but you were the one who managed to offload half of your rucksack into the camera car so that you were the one carrying the full whatever it was 40 pound weight None of us, none of us managed to wangle that luxury. Only you, Debbie McGee. (laughs) This is true. I mean, you know, for anybody listening who never saw the pilgrimage, I'm sure you can find it out there somewhere. But it was the Camino Way in the height of summer. It was June. It was around now, wasn't it, actually? And yes, and we had to carry our own rucksacks, which was, you know, full of everything. And um, yes, and we weren't allowed to put any on the the wagon that was following us with all the camera crew equipment but i did i did secretly wangle mine i remember watching you do it as well debbie and your face was like a little girl stealing biscuits (laughs) trying not to get caught this is true and you know i don't know if you knew this happened but towards the end of it at one point um 
the producer director, Tony, we were up a mountain somewhere where we could take our rucksacks off and just relax for a minute. And when we got going again, she walked over to mine and said, let me lift it up and carry it to the other side of the road for you. And I was going, no, no, no. <laughs> because <laughs> she would feel how light it was. <laughs> so I actually did get caught out because she, she found out. But anyway, I didn't get into trouble. But anyway, today we're not going to talk about me. Okay, baby. Because on Spilling My Tea, I uh, try and sort of find out a little bit maybe, you know, about you and your life, which I know a lot about from On the Pilgrimage. Um, but also, Neil, one thing I was going to just start off with is um, I was reading up about you because I thought, I know a lot, but let me make sure that I won't miss something I might want to put. And I was so glad that I did because I found out that your birthday is on July the 4th. Well, you know what? Uh, I know all the, on my birthday, uh, in, in celebration of my birthday, all the pubs are opening. Yeah. Yeah, but you know what, Debs? This is the only opportunity I've got. Um, I'm actually getting out of the country on the 1st of July. So I'm not going to be here. Um, <laughs> I, I've got to go. Um, you know, we've got, a, we've got a little place in, tiny little place in France. Yeah. And it's the only opportunity because I've got to, I, I start work in August um, mm -hmm. on this um, BBC thing, which apparently someone's going to announce soon, so I can't really talk about it, mm. um, uh, um, in, in August. And with the two-week self-isolation coming back from France, if I don't get there on like 1st of July, uh, by the time when I get back, I'll have to have two weeks before I start work. So, uh, so it's the only chance. And that, that job takes me right through to December. So I won't, my life won't be my own until uh, December again. So if I don't take this chance to get away, then I won't get away. So I'm taking it. I'm going to try and take the two weeks that I've been allocated and go away. Good. Well, have a great time. It was my, I haven't got him anymore, but July the 4th was my dad's birthday. Oh. And, you know, it was always a great birthday because of it being the American Independence Day and everything, you know. So, um, so well, have a great time. I don't know if this will go out before or after it, but whatever. You have no idea. They, they, they can figure out the dates, Debs. They've all got calendars. <laughs> go, go. <laughs> oh, we've started off again. So, Neil, when, you know, when we were doing the pilgrimage, I really didn't know very much about you apart from your acting work. And the thing that I think is so inspiring for everybody is that you came from a background that you talked very openly about, being taken away from your parents, basically, weren't you, and brought up in foster homes. But you've got no bitterness about that in your body anywhere. Why do you think that is when so many other people come out of that sort of thing and for the rest of their lives it affects them i've um you know often um thought about you know why and how that happened you know um, um i've always been a, a glass half full i've always been sort of a, a step beyond the moment as, as mm. you were you know like that like the right now like i'm always think, trying to think about the future uh, and and how that works now when you're a child you know your perspective of the future is a lot more reduced than it is when you um, become more mature. So I, I'm, I think I was always thinking that this can't last forever. Being in a care home cannot last forever because as soon as I leave school, as soon as I'm out back into you know into my with my own freedom, etc., this short period, which was only um, seventeen or so years, 
um, it'll, it'll be over. And that's what I've, I've, how I've always thought. And I didn't let myself go mad. And um, I was, I did quite well at school. I had, mm. I had my exams. I was always quite a smart kid. Um, I used to interact and I got into the theatre very early on, like about 11. I, went, I was yeah. taking this chair when I think I was 11 and, and round about that year, 10 or 11, um, I started doing the school plays and that kind of thing, which also gave me a, a community of uh, almost like a second family, mm. uh, something to concentrate on, something that I was getting praised for, because what you miss the most is parents and being parented. I was very lucky that the staff in my um, care home were amazing, you know, not all of them, um, but I had some fantastic people bringing me up, and my auntie Margaret, for instance, who I'm still in touch with now. Mar Margaret's well into her 70s now, and I still speak to her um, regularly, uh, um, you know, about stuff, you know, mm. and um, I think I was lucky in that sense. You know, she always said, I, I cannot be your mother, you know, but I will be, I will look after you as best I can. Because there was a turnover of staff as well. You never saw the same one twice. Some terrible things happened, but nothing as awful as other stories I've heard. And um, I guess, you know, it took me a few years after I left drama school to sort of really look back and appreciate how well um, I was looked after. But then there were other people who, who couldn't handle life quite so easily as mm -hmm. I did. Uh, kind of went off the rails in different ways and I'm not saying I haven't uh, been off the rails because thank goodness I have you know I mean, that's part of life anyway isn't it uh, regardless of where um, your your formative years are um, but um, yeah you know I, I think that's the main reason really I'm, I'm a glass half full I'm kind of um, uh, you know forward thinking in that sense and I'm, I don't let things upset me you know and you, you know, you were bright, you got your A-levels, you then went off to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, yeah. which you got into, but you had no funding. That's right. I am, um, well, number one, the Staffordshire Council wouldn't give me the money to, to pay for an audition. So mm. I had to go and get a job, and I got a job in Just Pants Plus in Handy, which is a jean outlet, jeans outlet, and, uh, and got the money together for both the rail fare and the audition fee. Uh, and um, yeah, uh, and got in, I got accepted, I got a place there, which is probably one of the most euphoric days of my life, that mm. passing your driving test and the birth of your children. I <laughs> <laughs> was in reverse order. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, you know, that, that I turned up on the, the first day at drama school and was, we registered and was asked into a room and they said, this is great, you, know, you have a place and we're happy to have you here, you're fantastic and blah, blah, but we don't appear to have any money for you. And I said, yes, that's correct. You haven't got any money for me. At the moment, they said, well, what are we going to do about that? I said, well, we're going to write to my MP. We're going to write to the Staffordshire County Council. Because in those days, it was um, a grant from the local yep. council, um, as opposed to a student loan, which is the, the new ripoff for our poor children these days. Mm. But um, I, um, eventually, I got a 50% grant which meant that my fees were paid. And that's all I was concerned about. The fees got yeah. paid. And for something like a 12 week term, I'd get 225 pounds. <clears throat> this is where I was the, the, the most expert um, sofa surfer um, <laughs> in the land. Mm. And um, so I, other people helped me out. One of my uncles, my uncle Mick helped me out a little bit, you know, but people would feed me, 
don't ask me why. I don't know what it was. Maybe that's hangdog expression. Uh, um, people fed me and looked after me. I mean, I only had one pair of jeans and three T-shirts, a pair of plimsolls, and I didn't even have an overcoat. Uh, so yeah. someone lent me an overcoat as well. And, and that's kind of how I managed to survive it the whole time through the charity of really good friends who I've been able to reciprocate in later years um, since I was able to earn a bit of money. But then in the second year, I started doing street theatre at the weekends. So learning my trade and paying my way, yeah. um, which is uh, great. You know, I was, I was working really from 18 onwards uh, at Covent Garden doing street mm. theatre. Very good show, actually. <laughs> Well, you know you've got something to fall back on should it ever all go wrong. <laughs> I, I, I mention it often, Deb, you know, disgruntled directors so don't worry about me, I can always go back to street theatre. <laughs> so, well, I mean, the thing that had never really occurred to me till actually I was thinking about it earlier today, uh, about you going to um, the Guildhall School of Music and Drama with no money, is that, of course, when you've lived in a care home, once you're over 18, You've actually got nowhere to live, have you? Which is was your situation. It yeah. wasn't a boarding school or college. No, no, no. So, you know, that's it. Where do you live? You've got no money. And as you said, these friends all helped you out and you were did your, your street act. I would have loved to have seen that. It was brilliant, Abs. <laughs> you were probably playing in the West End when I was um, with your dear, beloved husband, when I was uh, plying my trade on the streets of Covent Garden. <laughs> They're walking past at midnight, you know, like, what the hell, they should be going home now. Well, my, my jobs when I was paying my way at the Royal Ballet School was I worked in a Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah, you know. well, when M, my beloved, who's a lawyer, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, trained at Berkeley in the, the California, um, she was a, um, a sub-manager in McDonald's on her yeah. way you know, to pay for things. And it's what you yeah. did, what you do. I can't Absolutely. tell you how many pubs I've worked in. Uh, I worked in, you know, pubs. I did. I did one day at the, I think was it was it the Midland Bank or the Bank of England? Anyway, a big bank in the city. When mm. I, it came to half term, and I went to the employment agency, and they sent me down um, to the bank to go and work as a kitchen porter. And I went in. Um, they gave me the jacket and all of this, and said, "Take that trolley and go and collect plates and knives and forks and all this from the canteen." And as soon as someone, and literally this is, I didn't think this was possible to happen, someone waved a finger at me and said, boy, boy, come and collect these dishes. I, I took my jacket off, I put it on the trolley, I walked past the bloke and sort of said an expletive, which perhaps shouldn't be on your show, Debbie, <laughs> uh, and, um, and went into the kitchen, took my coat off, threw it on the desk and um, was walking out when the, the guy in the kitchen who'd employed me says, where are you, said, where are you going? I said, I'm, I'm not working here, mate. They're really rude in there. I'm not working here. And um, he said, but you can't go anywhere. I owe you £1.72. Oh. It's yours. You let him have it. <laughs> I let him have it because then within two weeks, I was working at Covent Garden, pulling in hats of 30 or £40. Pounds. Hmm. You know, our show it improved by about five weeks we were getting 30 40 pounds the first few weeks maybe a tenner but a tenner was enough to keep me alive for a week and that included having a few jars you know? yeah when you left the Guildhall um, School of Music and Drama and um, you immediately went into the business very early yeah I left with jobs I didn't even yeah. complete the whole three years yeah I left two terms early I did um, um, a job at that Christmas um, time. I think it must have been Christmas 82, where I got my equity card. Do you remember them? I do. 
um, at Chipping Norton um, in Oxfordshire for doing, doing Panto, which was directed by Esther Charkham and starring and written uh, by Dudley Sutton. Oh, um, right. And I played um, the skinniest Friar Tuck you've ever seen <laughs> in your life. I can't believe it at that age as well. Honestly, you know, it's still it's still going strong. Chipping Norton, it's yeah. about it's about half an hour from me, and I've done it a few times with Paul. You, you know, ten years ago on tour. Yeah, it's still going. It's a lovely, lovely little theatre, isn't it? Beautiful. It used to be. I think it was. Um, oh, what are they called? Up some religion. The um, you know the uh, soldiers uh, anyway that, yeah. that used to be a gathering hall for local religious people so that's kind of how it looks but the yeah. stage is 12 foot by 15 foot i mean there is no backstage i mean no. it's, it's incredible uh, yeah. and uh, but boy did i have a great time yeah great little it was midwinter i think my first my first wage down there was probably 40 something pounds mm. and then when we went into performances because we were doing three shows a day yeah. Plus, we were stage managers. We were acting stage managers. Um, I got eighty-five pounds on my first week of performing, and I went out and bought a pair of Doc Martins because my feet were freezing, and a big pair of woolly socks. <laughs> uh, and the rest of the money kept me sort of alive and in beer, you know, for the rest oh, of the week. And fantastic. the next week, I bought a coat and a jumper. By the second week of performing, I was toasty. <laughs> and then, was your first big part in? Boom, because that's the first thing I can really remember you in. Well, that was my first big TV. But yeah. I went off, um, pretty much that year, I was in a movie called The Bounty with Anthony Hopkins and Mel Gibson, Lord Olivier's last movie. Um, Anthony, Anthony Hopkins, of course, you know, um, mm. uh, so many people, uh, Malcolm Terrace, Dexter Fletcher. Um, it, I mean, it was a, a brilliant, brilliant production. And we were in Tahiti for, for 16 weeks. And New Zealand for four or five weeks as well. And mm. I couldn't believe it. I thought this, my career is brilliant. Uh, and then, of course, I came back to Earth with a, with a crash after that movie. But my first major TV, because I did a few episodes, bits and pieces, Juliet Bravo was my very first, directed by Adrian Shergold. That was my very first TV. And then, years later, um, Esther Charkin, who championed me at drama school, she was a big casting director, then turned producer, and she was on Robin of Sherwood, hmm. which I auditioned for the takeover for Michael Prade. Uh, I didn't get it because apparently my dad was called Larry Morrissey and the bloke who got it, his dad was called Sean Connery. <laughs> so it was, oh, Jason Connery's dad. it was Jason Connery, who's an absolute sweetheart. I don't know if he still um, works anymore, but um, what, what an absolute brilliant bloke he is. And, um, but Esther then went on to produce Boone and that's when I got cast as Rocky, the Midlander, with long hair, which is getting back to it now, um, who looks dangerous, covered in uh, head to toe in black leather, which is just the character description. Mm. Um, but when he takes his helmet off, he looks like a soft-headed puppy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. So that, that was me in the, uh, in the 80s, yeah. But, you know, in those early days, Neil, I mean, something I, I love about you is you are always just yourself whoever you're with. Yeah. And, but in those early days, like going into a, doing Bounty, you were young, reasonably inexperienced then. Very much so. Um, how did you feel around those great big named actors? It was extraordinary at the time because, of course, I, all through my career, I've been a learner. It doesn't matter if you're operating the camera or if you're, you're the guy in front or the lenses. Or the, I need to know what everything's about. 
in order to try and improve, you know. So when we walk on to, the first thing that happened when I walked onto the set in the Bounty, um, I, I was, you know, a car came and picked me up, hmm. you know, a posh car, <laughs> and uh, took me to Wembley Studios, <clears throat> where we're filming the first day, the first sequences we were filming were the storm sequences. So we arrive at the studios and I go into the canteen and get my tray and get myself a free breakfast, mm. unheard of, and, um, and sit down at a, bunch of t at a table with a bunch of guys who are all saying to me, oh yeah, the last time I worked with Tony Hopkins, um, oh, he was a real gent, you know. Oh, Mel Gibson, yeah, this is my third film with Mel Gibson. I'm looking around the table and I don't recognise a single soul. And this goes on with about six or seven of them. Yeah, I was just working with Lord Olivier as well. You know, I was on The Hamlet um, years ago and I'm thinking, I don't know who these actors are. Dexter Fletcher walked up behind me and went, Neil, why are you sitting on the table with the, all the extras? <laughs> Come over here. Come over here to the proper table. <laughs> Charming as they were, I was, I was happy to go and meet the people who were actually playing the characters. Because I didn't mm. know anyone. I was 20 years old. Yeah. I didn't know anyone. I knew Dexter was because I'd seen him in a couple of movies already. You know, mm. I knew Tony Hopkins and uh, Mel Gibson, of course. But everyone else was all new. Dan Day-Lewis, never heard of him. Um, Liam Neeson, never heard of him. You know, these are all people in the movie that you're meeting on the day. Yeah. It's extraordinary. I had my 21st birthday in Tahiti. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I, was on, I went out on the tear with Mel Gibson. Um, uh, and uh, because he was only 27 at the time, so he kind of took me under his wing. And so mm. I had my 21st birthday out in Tahiti. I had a big dinner with all the cast and everybody came, the directors, the producers, the whole lot. I, I was, felt so privileged. They were so sweet. And then Gibson turned up late and just took me out to the Club Med where we, you know, do what you do at the Club Med. When you're oh. <laughs> what a fantastic story. I mean, especially from where, what you came from to celebrate your 21st birthday like that. Yeah. Well, three then... years before, I was in a care home. Two yeah. years before, I was in a foster home. You know... Um, this extraordinary, you know, having my 21st birthday in Tahiti with Mel Gibson would, would you know, it wouldn't even have been on a wish list. I would, probably would have wished for cake and a pint. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you would have been happy. Yeah. <laughs> and so you came back and you said, yeah, then you're, you know, a bit brought back down to earth. You've got to look for work. And then, you know, all the other things, Robin Hood, boom, came yeah. along. So from then i mean you did a lot of other movies through the years i was yeah. looking at your sheet today and i think we'd be here till next year to read them all out but um so as time went on are you a person that when you're playing a new role because you've played so many different types of characters do you get nervous i get nervous every time i start a job i'm getting nervous about um in a, a month's time when i walk on set for the first time in this rather you know, lots yeah. of big BBC gig. And um, I'm already nervous. Uh, you know, you, even saying that makes me want to just go and get my scripts out and, uh, and have another look through. Um, I think it's, uh, it's not so much the nerves of early years. It's more the nerves of the anticipation. It's a yeah. whole new crew. I'll probably walk on set and know half of them anyway, if not two thirds. And mm. um, it's, it's that environment. It's about not want because you know how when it is on a film set there could be 80 people 100 people and it's about everyone else's job as well so the nerves aren't for how i'm going to be it's about the responsibility to the writer to the other actors 
to everyone on set. I've got to get this right. So there's that build up and you do your work beforehand where you start looking at things and learning and, you know, coming up with ideas, attitudes, colors, you know, whatever it might be, hairstyles, all of this kind of stuff starts flying through my head. So it's more about anxiety than nerves. Mm. And once I get going on a set after a couple of days, I'm bang on it, I'm bang on it. But always first day, it still makes me anxious, yeah. And, you know, it was, you know, still early days, really, when you got men behaving badly, which really pushed you into the public eye then. Massively. It was like being shot out of a crossbow. Yeah. Uh, and it was a slow build-up because we did a series um, for ITV. Because I took over for Harry Enfield. Hmm. Well, I didn't take over the same character. I, was, I replaced Harry's character with a new character. He was played Dermot, and I came in as Tony, the new flatmate. And... Um, we won the best comedy on ITV that year. And then after that, the ITV withdrew it from their schedule. <clears throat> and then David Liderman moved from ITV to BBC. And the one show he took with him was The Men Behaving Badly. And I the didn't realise that. We were making a new series and the series we'd made went out after Ab Fab. So we were in the 9.30 to 10 o'clock slot before the news. And then back to back, our new series, the new six, went out in the Ab Fab slot from 9 to 9.30. So all of a sudden, we were in the prime time, a Wednesday, 9 o'clock slot. Mm. And it went through the roof. I cannot tell you, it was massive, pretty mm. quickly. You know, I can remember all of that because it really was the programme everybody was talking about your character was a lovable rogue really um you know we all loved you all the girls adored you um <laughs> how did you cope with the fame bit then because that was sort of before you were really just working as an actor and a little bit known but suddenly you're all you know you're a television superstar well i was able to study uh, michael alfick for nine years on Booth, <laughs> and michael was the biggest thing in the country yeah. Um, and you couldn't go anywhere with Michael. Uh, um, it was so I'd witnessed it for a, a, for many many years about how to keep hold of your sanity to a certain degree, about how to treat the um, um, the publicity, about picking and choosing where you go, uh, just about being uh, um, you know. Uh, being careful with your personal life and your public life, you know, try, l learning how to keep them separate. But of course, nothing prepares you for when it's actually coming at you. You can watch someone else with the bullets all flying by and think, my goodness, thank goodness I'm not him. And then it starts happening to you and you're getting hit by the bullets. So it's how do you, how do you then mm. react? And none of us had things like PRs or anything like that in those days. So it really became an onslaught of good and bad. Uh, um, but I mean, it was a joy. Of course, it's what, uh, when I was an, as an 18 year old student and asked by uh, one of my teachers, Ben Benison, who wants to be a star of the class of 40 that there were at the time. Actually, no, maybe there was only 20 of us. Yeah, we were 20. Of the class of 20 of us, two of us put our hand up. <laughs> and that was me and Adrian Dunbar. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Adrian and I auditioned on the same day. We've been friends for over 40 yeah. years. And, um, and we both put our hands up. And of course, this is the point during Men Behaving Badly that I wanted my career to get to. It's after a couple of years of having that sustained kind of high profile that you start mm. to realize this isn't all, um, all it's cracked up to be. The parts were great, getting into the Ivy was great. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, those kind of things that come with it, being able to buy a new car, for instance, you know, yeah. 
perhaps even get on the mortgage market, all those things that it brings with it, with a, with a, a bit of money and a bit of stability, um, was a, a fantastic part of it. But the onslaught from the press was unprecedented. And, and as you know, we've, we've, I don't know if you have, but I've since dealt with that. Uh, yes. when, we, when we discovered that um, how illegal um, we were being um, trapped uh, um, and, and you know, followed by private detectives and all the phones were being hacked for, um, we estimate, uh, at least 15 years that was on, ongoing in my case. So it was, um, it was good to find that out even, which was only a few years ago, so that I wasn't actually going mad at the time that I have friends who were sneaking to the press or yeah. you didn't know what company you were keeping because you didn't know if they were the ones going to the press. Whereas actually I was carrying around, you know, the whole press contact mm. thing in my ear the whole time and didn't know it. Yeah. But, you know, as you said, you dealt with it. So, you know, you can more or less sleep easily and you've, you know, now you haven't stopped working since then. And, you know, with all your movies and the TV stuff, you know, and even now in the last couple of years, most days when I switch the television on, there you are in an old episode of Inspector George Gently or oh, yeah. Yeah. the latest Unforgotten or Striking yeah. Out, playing the QC Vincent, wasn't it, or something, in Striking Out. That's right, yeah. And playing all these these different characters and... I loved the Good Karma Hospital. Mm. Well, we're hoping to do more. Um, we don't know yet. Uh, there's, mm. uh, there's interest. Uh, there's been no confirmation. But that's a, a, a brilliant, brilliant gig. I just love mm. that. You know, and I, I don't even need to list the, the whys, but I'm going to. Uh, number one, uh, I'm uh, Amanda Redmond's love interest. Number two, it's in Sri Lanka. And number three, I'm not one of the leads. I'm just one of the regulars. You know, yeah. so there isn't as much pressure, but I can lend gravitas to whoever they want to send me for scenes at the bar. Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm experienced, I can do it. And I don't mind doing the little fill-ins and the little bits either. I mean, that's, that comes with experience. It's, it's threading the show together, you know, in that sense. And, and you know, sometimes I get light, light story um, lines and sometimes I, I have to deal with the, the fallout from the main story, which yeah. is... Lydia, you know, Mandy yeah. works so hard on that, I cannot tell you. And okay. I tend to just get maybe the three or four day week, you know, poor Mandy's <laughs> out there every day in 30 degree heat, 90% humidity, working <laughs> in a mosquito infested uh, um, hospital. But everyone, we have a ball doing that show, Debs. You should try and get on it, we'll try and get you on it. Oh yeah, yeah I'll, I'll just play somebody dying, anything. <laughs> a dead person on beach, Debbie McGee. <laughs> yes. Suit me perfectly, and I won't have to act. Um, I mean, one one thing I have to say that there, there was one thing, not work-wise, that you did, but something that you did that I I wasn't happy with you, Neil, and that was after we finished the pilgrimage, yeah. and we all kept in contact, which we still do a, a bit, you know, on our yeah. WhatsApp group. You couldn't tell us what job you were doing. But in fact, of course, afterwards, I found out it was death in paradise. <laughs> and you sent us pictures. We were all in the freezing cold in England and they'd flown you out early to the Caribbean or wherever it's filmed yeah. to get a suntan. And you were sending <laughs> these pictures back. Look where I am, guys, you know, with your cocktail in your hand. Yeah. Uh, whatever. You know what? I think it was um, Sri Lanka. I think I was going oh, was it? Series one of A Good Karma. 
Oh. And I didn't mention it because the ITV hadn't announced it yet. That's it. So you go. And, oh. and I did on my feet outside my hotel <laughs> uh, because they were going into, because we're out there, we normally film till about December. So it would have been um, October, November, December yeah. when I was sending you the pics. <laughs> um, when it was freezing cold in the UK and I was in a, on a beach going, hi guys. <laughs> exactly. Well, I've never forgiven you. I mean, you know, that's <laughs> what you like to your mates. Um, so what's lockdown been for you? Well, um, um, well, we've had uh, Em's parents here the whole time. Oh, have you? Oh, you right. Know, they popped over to visit their grandson, our nephew, mm. um, in March and couldn't get back. So they're, they're, they're still here. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay Debs because I've put a big I've put a big padlock on the knife drawer <laughs> so you're safe rather than being safe you never know what could happen in the night they're old Debs you know they might just get freaked out you know? but, it's, but you know what it hasn't been um, as awful as if you'd asked them beforehand what it was going on so you've just got to get yourself into a mindset this is yeah. how it's going to be and plus, you and I both know what it's like to be out of work for month upon month. Yeah. And, and so therefore, how do we occupy ourselves in, in, a, in a different sense? Yeah. A lot of people I, I feel sorry for were the people who are going into an office every day, all day, except for their couple of weeks off a year, et cetera, et cetera, whose routine has been so blown um, to smithereens that you know, their whole lifestyle has had mm. to change. Whereas we're used to changing our lifestyle every couple of months, whether we're on tour in Blackpool or we're up in Edinburgh or we're doing, you know, abroad or whatever. Mm. We kind of get used to that. But the, the people who do um, regular work is exactly mm. that. Their regular life split up. But we, you know, we, I'm, I'm, I live with a house full of pedants. So we have our food schedule uh, for a week in advance. So we know what dinners we're all having. So we, because there was really no going out, we've had no takeaways. We just didn't um, completely isolated uh, uh, in that sense. I mean, now uh, my pub does little takeaways. Yeah. I don't mind going down there and sitting having a plastic cup full of beer mm. with um, some of my pals. Uh, but mostly we've been just keeping it indoors and walking to the park occasionally. Em and I go out for walks and we go, been going to the local shops. I haven't even tried a supermarket. I don't, there's queues and I go, nah. I'll go yeah, to the yeah. local shop and it's a few pence more but you know it's yeah. fantastic I, I really love the guys and um so yeah our food schedules kept us alive jigsaws akimbo <laughs> place is full of jigsaws crosswords um quiz shows mm. parents, parents are addicted to quiz shows big fans of yours as well by the way Debs. Uh, both of them Especially my uh, mother-in-law, Nancy, who loved Strictly and adored you on that and was so jealous that I know you. I invited <laughs> her in. I said, come and say hello to Debs. She'll be fine. I know she'll be fine. And she went, no, I don't think I will. I don't think I will. She just gets oh. a bit nervous when it comes yeah. to the punch. Yeah. Yeah. So before we go, Neil, is there any sort of quote that you live by? Or I know you say that you're very positive, glass always half full always looking forward and I suppose that is what your mantra is in a way that is very much me you know one day at a time and uh, nothing is un insurmountable regardless of the pressures that things bring, um, bring on top of you you know mm. um, there's two outcomes you're alive or you're dead if you're dead you don't care if you're alive there's something you can do about things whether that's in your demeanor and I know people have been absolutely run ragged with uh, the with the COVID and uh, mm. have you know uh, physically suffered and people physically suffer an awful lot um, but it, it's a mental thing it's 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 difficult 
uh, it's been very difficult for people, but trying to just keep that positive spark somewhere in your demeanor. Um, um, you know, I will always try and have a joke. I, I quote, um, oh, what's him? He, he called me a really bad name, famous act, Richard Harris. Yeah. But Richard Harris, when he was being wheeled out on a stretcher to go to hospital and died therein from the Savoy, where he lived for the last few years of yes. his life. As he was being wheeled in and a big crowd was around him, he had the time to turn to the crowd and say, don't eat the fish. <laughs> yeah, and that will be you. You'll think of something. I'll have something to say. You know? <laughs> um, well, I heard a quote this week, which I think kind of sums up you and how you think really, um, which is, and you may have heard this quote before, Never give up believing that something wonderful is about to happen. Yeah, I think that's, that, that would sum up my attitude. That's something wonderful. You know, you can make it as epic or as minute as you want. I mean, my something wonderful today, I'm really looking forward to Nancy, my mother-in-law's schnitzels. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I look forward to that kind of stuff. I'm looking forward yeah. to walking down to the pub with my missus in a minute to go and meet a friend and we'll be socially distanced and I'll have a cold beer with a dear friend I haven't seen for a few weeks. Yep. And that is, a, is my kind of wonderful too. I yeah. mean, it doesn't have to be you're going to win the lottery because yeah. the odds on that aren't going to happen. The odds on you getting a decent schnitzel from your mother-in-law are pretty high. Yeah. Well, listen, Neil, it's a joy to see you and also to talk to you. And thanks for giving up your time to spill some tea with me, Debbie McGee. Thank you, Debbie. You're absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> Next time it'll be a glass of vodka. <laughs> yes, mate. Slammers. Spill the tea with Debbie McGee. You know you want to. Well, I hope you enjoyed my little chat with Neil Morrissey. Such an easy guy to talk to and lovely tales, isn't it? Lovely stories. Um, I hope you're all coping still with this very strange time uh, we're living in. And of course, with the weather being so good, that does help. But I don't know if you're like me, that on the rainy days, I've got far more done. Um, because as soon as the sun comes out, I'm you know, like Lewis Hamilton. I jump on my ride on mower and I whiz around my garden and I deadhead my roses and because I just don't want to be indoors. Um, so I hope that you're all coping and, and things aren't too tough for you. Um, my next guest coming up on Spill the Tea with Debbie McGee is going to be an actor who you may not have heard of. His name is Andy Nyman. But I'm trying to find really interesting people for you and Andy has played a lot of very good cameo roles in movies and is one of the most interesting people I've met he's very comfortable in his own skin he's confident he knows what he can do and he really knows his job so uh, do tune in next time because it's a really great interview with the actor Andy Nyman on Spill the Tea with me Debbie McGee Spill the tea with Debbie McGee. You know you want to.